0: Welcome back to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, the podcast that celebrates the one Ashes Test Wonders. We're dealing exclusively with CEOs on the show at the moment. Greg Campbell, head honcho of Papua New Guinea Cricket, was the guest on our last episode. And John Stevenson, CEO of Essex Cricket, is in the hot seat today. Greg played in the first test of the 1989 Ashes at Headingley when hopes were high of an England series win. By the time John entered the action in the sixth and final test of the series at the Oval, they were 4-0 down and the Ashes were long gone. There were very different selection policies in play by the competing sides, Australia using only 12 players during the series while England called for 29. And before we hear John Stevenson's story, we're going to pay tribute to the 29th, who joined John in the ranks for that oval test. When I started this series, there were 45 players still alive who had played in only one Ashes test. But the tragic and untimely passing of Alan Iggleston in November 2021 reduced this number by one. I still wanted to hear and share Alan's story and legacy. And so I'm very pleased to say that Alan's brother, Kevin, agreed to speak to me and admirably fulfilled these duties. He started by telling me about Alan's early playing days.
1: Yeah, he kind of was more of a batsman, then he kind of got into bowling, but then he kind of, he shot up, his his height went quite quickly, within the space of a year, 18 months, he had gone from kind of five foot ten to six foot six. So all of a sudden, when he was bowling, it was obviously coming from quite a big height.
0: Alan clearly had the build and physique to become an excellent fast bowler, but how far could he go?
1: I remember Colin Page telling my dad one night that he said, if, you, if your boy listens and does what he's told, he'll play for England one day. And my dad we drove over and he went, don't know what to make of that. And I said, well, just, you never know. You could see in those nets he was, he was quite quick and he was quicker than anyone in the nets. And you thought, well, maybe, you know, he's got a point.
0: It would only be a matter of time before he played for Kent, but he had little time to prepare for his county championship debut in 1986.
1: I went down to Canterbury with Alan. He was playing the second team game. And the Kent Secretary at the time he came over and said to hey, you, Kevin. I said, Yeah, he said, Oh, we're we're off to Maidstone. Alan's there's an injury at Maidstone, Alan's gonna play in the first team. We shot up the road in the in the secretary's car and he kind of he got on the pitch about twenty past eleven, I think, twenty minutes late, within an hour he was he'd got his first wicket. So it was kind of Pretty surreal. I remember just sitting in the crowd thinking, what's going on? Yeah, Brian Rose was his first Kent wicket.
0: Last-minute call-ups would become a feature of his career, and that was certainly the case with his England debut.
1: Well, that was pretty much like his test debut as well. It all happened in, I think he was famous saying he was like 17th choice, Mickey Stewart or something. I don't know if he was the 17th choice or whether they were just kind of saying that, but it was a late call-up. Literally, from a county game, straight in the car to the Oval. So, similar thing, he had no real time to kind of get nervous, I guess. He was on cloud nine, as you can imagine. The Australia batted first, so he was, first morning, he was straight into the game. The England first wicket was called Allen, Bold, Gladstone. I can't remember the opening bat, but Jeff Marsh. Then the next wicket was Mark Taylor, so, after, so he had hand in the first two wickets, yeah. And Mark Taylor that summer was um, pretty much scoring runs for fun, so it was a it was a good first wicket. Yeah, and he was he was obviously chuffed a bit. Second wicket, yeah. Steve War, and then second innings he got uh, Marshall, I Think, yeah. I've, I've got a video of that. It looked quite a sharp ball. I think obviously the overall was a quick wicket then. and Yeah, it looked like he'd done him for a bit of pace, which was quite good. I don't think he disgraced himself. He kind of, I've, I've got. Um, about a 20 minute video of the game, and he kind of, you know, bowled some really good balls to Boulder. He squared Boulder up a few times, and I think he got caught behind, which wasn't given as well. Yeah, I think he was quite pleased. He, obviously, the biggest crowd he had played in front of.
0: Alan should never really have been a one Ashes test wonder. When the next home series against Australia came along in 1993, he was very much part of the selectors' thinking.
1: That was disaster, actually. He was. I think as the 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 Shame Warren ball of the century it was that series. I've got a picture of the averages and I think he was the top English him and Bicknell, I think were the two leading England bowlers in the with Wacker Unis, Kirkley Ambrose and the, he would have been picked when he was kind of on form, so we were kind of really excited. I spoke to Steve Marsh, the Kent Keeper, and he said four or five balls and over, they couldn't lay a bat on him. So we were thinking, no, this is really good and then the night before the game, he, he was picked to play. He knew he was playing. It rained at Old Trafford and I think Gucci was captain and they had an indoor football match. And he'd done his groin playing football the night before. Yeah, he was just devastated because he, he knew he was playing. He knew he was bowling well. I think he got picked for the first three or four test matches all that summer, but he just wasn't fit. Yeah, I remember sitting at work and I, I actually cried. and I went to the toilet, I heard it on the news he was always kind of upbeat because he he always had nibbles and well, bowlers always do, but he he was kind of upbeat and thought you know I'll be fit for the next one and you know it doesn't matter to me I thought it was the end of the world.
0: But that injury ravaged season didn't end his international chances, and he was selected for the winter tour to the West Indies.
1: But yeah, that that was pleasing because he he was picked for the first three matches never played, and they still kind of wanted him to go in that winter, so they obviously kind of thought quite highly of him at that time. He loved that tour. Yeah, really good time. And I think that was his first one as captain, as a tour. And they kind of took a bit of a gamble, took you know, youngsters and spoke to Mike Averton. And he, he said it he, he was one of his favourite tours. Everyone got on and you know it was a really good, you know, good team spirit up against it, against a good West Indian side.
0: Allen played in the first two test matches, both convincing wins for the West Indies and in all four ODIs. Kevin arrived in time for the fourth test at Barbados and although Alan wasn't in the starting 11, it was the scene of a rare England win, largely thanks to Alex Stewart's century in both innings. But for Kevin, it would prove to be the best of times and the costliest
1: of times. The nightmare was the hotel. I got done over on the hotel. It cost me $10,000. I stayed at Sandy Lane. Knew this guy who claimed to have sell holidays to the rich and famous. And when they cancel, he still has the hotel room. At the time, we paid five hundred pounds to go to Barbados for ten days. We turned up there, didn't know, and it was White Rolls voice picked us up from the airport, Sandy Lane. <laughs> so we just thought, well, this is this is quite nice. Didn't think any more of it, and had ten days there, all inclusive, and. I think Ramper Cash came down there one day because it was nicer hotel than where they were staying. I think there was a Queen and um, Duke of Edinburgh picture in the hallway signed photo, they stayed there. Got to the morning of the checkout and the bedside phone was flashing. Picked it up and said, Oh, can you come to reception? There's a problem with your with your bill. And I said, Well, shouldn't be because we've already already paid. He went, No, no, the nothing's been paid. So we went out there and it was like ten thousand U.S. dollars for the bill, and we've got well, we haven't got it. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit. A bit of a, one of the guys i was with just he paid it on his um, American Express card. We kind of got out, and then I remember being in the news of the world. There was a, a reporter for the Today newspaper he used to live in Western. He said, "I can try and sell the story if you kind of try and get some money." Cricket heroes brother in kind of holiday scam or something. Um, I think I got two hundred quid. It went a little way, to, <laughs> but yeah, that was the nightmare. I mean, it was a, yeah, it was, it was a brilliant experience out there, but yeah, expensive.
0: That tour would prove to be Allen's final one for England, and after a few more seasons for Kent, his health began to take a turn for the worse.
1: Ninety-eight was his testimonial, and then he was released that year. Yeah, he played minor counties for Berkshire, and that's when he had a, his first kind of funny, funny turn had like a little mini stroke in the changing room, I think, at Berkshire. So yeah, that was the end of his cricket So 1999. A week or so later, he had a fit in his sleep. As soon as you have a fit, you have to have a brain scan. And yeah, it showed this tumour. It was smack in the centre of his head so they couldn't remove it. Went in for a biopsy and it wasn't a fast-growing one. Uh, Although it was quite big, They had it under control for quite a long time. They got a feeling it was such a slow-growing one, so he he could have had it when he was playing. I think for his type of tumour, he's one of the longest survivors in the country, I think. They did say life expectancy of 10 years, and that was 1999. He did have a major turn where it doubled in size, and we thought, you know, that's it, that's the 10 years. So they kind of, in Sheffield, they said, we've got no option now to operate. Which they did, but his short-term memory went. His long-term memory was still pretty good, and it was only up until the last four or five years he had a reasonable quality of life. It was just the succession of strokes was just kind of taking a bit away every time. So I don't know how he done it. I mean, I don't. Yeah, he's obviously very mentally strong. He just thought he was he would beat it. His daughter's nine now, so that obviously. Kept him going as well, I think.
0: Alan passed away on the 1st of November 2021. And as you'd expect, the cricketing community was quick to rally round.
1: He was well looked after by the PCA. They put in a chairlift for him. Graham Gooch, through his foundation, donated a mobility scooter, uh, which was really, really nice of him. He had a good day out. During lockdown, the Kent took him to Headingley, it was all behind closed doors, but they opened a the box. So I think it was Martin McKay, Dean Headley, Richard Ellison, Matthew Fleming, Steve Marsh, took Alan in his wheelchair into the box. And yeah, I think Kent made a little presentation for him, but it was all kind of hush-hush because it was it was in lockdown. So he was well like Arthur and Kent were very good with um, paying for the funeral and stuff through their foundation, which was nice.
0: And no one has been more supportive than Phil Tufnell.
1: Tufers has been, he's been brilliant. They obviously played against each other, but they came really close in the Caribbean and like stayed really good mates. And he he's, um, comes to all the golf days and does whatever he can. And Alan was best man at his wedding. He said it was embarrassing, but he, he said he was trying to do a speech, and there's people like Jonathan Ross there and people like that, who are, and he said you're trying to make people laugh when you know there's comedians and all that.
0: Since Alan's death, Kevin and the family have set up Iggy's Fund as a lasting legacy of Alan and to raise funds for brain tumour research.
1: We've raised about over three hundred thousand for brain tumour just through golf, cricket matches, dances, and stuff. And obviously, since Alan passed away, we thought, well, what should we do? And then we thought, you know, we'd set a charity up, carry on the legacy, and stuff. It's quite expensive, but we're doing it properly, getting a charity number. And the first year we're we're going to try and aim to get about 20000 to buy a piece of machinery for brain tumour research. That's kind of our first goal. And then after that, as a committee, we decide where the money's going to go. But we've, it could be that we could sponsor a young cricketer. We've got links with Cape Town still. He played in a township in, in Cape Town, very underprivileged. So we, you know, it could be we could support a club or a player, a young cricketer from there. There's talk of us funding a um, student nurse who's looking into research into brain tumours. So there's lots, lots going on.
0: Yeah, certainly lots going on. And you can find out more at alanigleston.com. A big thank you to Kevin for taking the time to take us through Alan's life and times. We wish him and the family all the very best for the future. OK, let's shift our attention now to Mr. John Stevenson. John Stevenson was an opening batsman and medium pace bowler for Essex, Hampshire and England. He made 14,773 first-class runs with 2,500s and 78.50s and took 396 first-class wickets at 32.55. He played his one test for England against Australia at the Oval in 1989. John, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thank you, Ryan. Really good to have you on the show. I just wanted to ask you, first of all, what your first memories of Ashes cricket were.
2: Well, going back to when I was about seven years old, actually going to a, a Lord's Test, the 1972 Ashes Test. It's a great memory. Of Obviously, a lot happened in that Test match. It's a pretty historic match, the um, Bob Massey game. And then earlier on than that, even listening to the 1970 series from Australia on my radio in my bedroom, uh, at the age of five, even. So, yeah, I mean, from a very early age, I was, I was massively into Ashes
0: cricket. And who were the names that really inspired you? Who were your kind of cricketing heroes when you were growing up?
2: Well, then it was in those days, it was players like John Edrich, Tony Gregg, Ray Lingworth, John Snow and Alan Knott, Keith Fletcher. Those sort of players really, really uh, resonated with me particularly Tony Gregg for some reason, I think, as as an all-rounder and an England captain in the the sort of later on in the mid-70s.
0: Yeah, well, if you don't mind, we'll just have a look at your uh, formative years at Essex. So could you just start by telling us how the opportunity with Essex arose? Well, when I was at school,
2: Essex had a link, a very strong link, actually, uh, with with Felstead. They used to come and play a pre-season friendly at Felstead every April, which is really exciting for all of us. They used to bring a an Essex first team. And then, then I kind of got picked up. They started to hear about me uh, with what I was doing at Felstead. And I was invited to Winter Nets at Essex. And then I gradually made my way through the under-16s, under-19s, and got a contract when I was sort of 18, yes, nine at back end of 1983. So that was really just working my way through the system, really, but we didn't have. the formal pathways that we have now it seemed a lot less formal but equally as not maybe not equally as robust but a good pathway because they they usually picked up whatever talent was 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 there and embedded them in in the system and that that, those early days of netting with some of my heroes especially in the winter nets were were massively helpful to my development.
0: Of course one of those big names was was Graham Gooch and match that really stood out in the record books was that day against Worcestershire when you put on 214 with Graham Gooch. What, what do you remember about that match and how big a stepping stone in your career was that? That
2: was so exciting because up until that moment, I hadn't really, I mean, I'd got a few runs against New Zealand and I hadn't really established myself in the team in county games. And that was a big week at South End. fantastic crowd. I think it was a Saturday. So there was a massive crowd there in those days. And we were playing against a really good Worcestershire team, opening with Gooch on a good pitch. You know, I was really very nervous. You know, that was a a breakthrough innings, really. I learned so much just from that one innings.
0: Sure. And that was Gooch's first season as captain. Obviously, led Essex to the Championship. What was he like as a captain? What was he like to bat with?
2: He was a role model. He was so hardworking. I mean, you just had to watch him and learn because his work ethic was incredible. His run scoring and also the way he organised his life around cricket was was an inspiration just to make sure, you know, as with everything in life, if you're organised and you're prepared, you give yourself half a chance. And I think I learned a lot of that from him.
0: And what was it like for you as a junior member of the side? Suddenly you're coming into this very successful side and, you know, you've won the county championship in your first full season. You must have thought you'd really landed on your feet.
2: Well, I had. I, I really did. And I think it's, it's made me realise that the best time to introduce young players is into a, into a strong team. It gives them a head start. And I was very lucky to be introduced into a successful team, as was Paul Pritchard and Nasser as well. Slightly later on, you know, we were all embedded in, a, in that sort of success culture and it, it rubs off on you.
0: And you secured the title that season at Trent Bridge. What do you remember about the celebrations and, you know, the feeling within the dressing room? Obviously a great feeling to win a
2: championship. However, it felt quite low key because we only needed a couple of points to win it that day. So the celebrations were slightly muted. I remember seeing recently uh, in an interview that Gucci did that day. <laughs> he could be forgiven <laughs> for, for thinking that we hadn't won the championship it was just one of the typical sort of Essex low-key reaction to things in those days. And um, I suppose, in, you know, we were winning a lot of championships and well, one must never tire of it or think it's, you know, it would take it for granted. But Gucci's reaction that day was understated, let's say.
0: Understated is the word. I've seen that interview, yeah. In those days, you just go
2: pack your bags and go to the next game and travel to the next game. And I remember winning... Several championships with with Essex and Gucci saying to us, "You know, we got to concentrate on the next game." Even if we'd already won a championship, I think it's Derby. We went there after winning a championship in '91 and chased down 400 in the fourth innings. That that was an incredible achievement, but that was the way Gucci kept us focused.
0: And what about your own kind of personal form in those days? As you said, you had that amazing partnership with Gucci against Wor- Worcestershire, and you made 85 uh, on that occasion. But that first century was proving quite elusive, wasn't it? And I I noticed you scored 99 against uh, Leicestershire, wasn't it? In 87. Do you remember what happened there?
2: Yeah, I remember it vividly because I hadn't got 100. It took me a few years to... I got a lot of scores, you know, and, and contributed well. And I was establishing myself, but I just couldn't get 100. And I was on 99 against Leicestershire at Chelmsford. Good pitch. Peter Woody was bowling. He brought the two men up to try and lure me over the top. So I thought, you know, to hit it over the top, that's one of my shots. And I decided not to go for that option and played a fatal sweep shot. And what I didn't realise is they brought square leg up as well. So it's unusual to get caught in front of square off a sweep shot at normal square leg. I think it's Briars caught me. Yeah, I was devastated.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. But then you finally did make your maiden first class turn in 89 against Kent. So that must have been, well, what was it? Was it elation? Was it relief? What was the main emotion there?
2: Both. I just remember being very proud of that innings because it was a tough pitch. I mean, not many people were scoring runs early that season, definitely. And I made sure I went from 90 to 100 very quickly. It was Hartley-Elaine, dug a couple in and I decided to have a go at them and Luckily, one went for four and one went for six, I think.
0: I mean, you were in such good form, weren't you, in 89? And just looking at some of your scores, 94 against Derbyshire, 100 100 against Somerset and against Surrey at the Oval. But then the one that really stood out in terms of your England career was that 171 you made against Lancashire just before the sixth test in which you were selected. So was was that a big knock for you?
2: That was a a very well-timed 100 because everything was going wrong for England they just had a disastrous test match I think at Trent Bridge and everything was falling into place and that hundred at Lidham St. Anne's I remember it so well it's good pitch again I played a long innings it was the first ever first class hundred at Lidham St. Anne's which is interesting but yeah I mean I was in good form and as I say it was a a well-timed century
0: Yeah, as was your century against, bizarrely, the Netherlands. Was that the other knot that kind of propelled you into the thinking for that sixth test, do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it
2: was. Bizarrely, that England B team that went to the Netherlands, captained by Peter Robach, was packed full of players that had England aspirations. And I managed to get through the two days pretty well. Day one, I got 40-odd, gave my wicket away, because I didn't, I don't know, I think we were cruising to victory against the Netherlands, and I thought we were going to, just really really make it an easy job of it and I thought I'd give someone else a bat which is silly because we ended up losing and the press was terrible so the next day I decided to make the most of it open the batting and got a, a big hundred which was as you say again very well timed
0: yeah but then you you got you got to see the Australians at close quarters then didn't you because I understand you were playing against Australia when you found out you'd been called up for the for the test side is that right? That's right.
2: Day one against the Australians at Chelmsford. A bizarre scenario being told just before the game that I was uh, being picked for England. And then, and then playing that match. That wasn't a very well-timed game, actually.
0: Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because the other two were really well-timed. But as you said, maybe that one wasn't. But because of that, that big knock you had against Lancashire, were you thinking about England test selection or did it just come completely out of the blue? I...
2: I remember finishing that game at Rhythm St. Anne's and getting in my car and listening to the news and thinking, well, you never know. I mean, who else are they going to select? Getting more runs than anyone else? And I started to think, why not? But it still came out of the blue. I mean, I was still shocked when I got the nod.
0: And of course, Alan Eagleston, the late Alan was was called up for that test as well. So I think this probably says it all about the selection process, that you were the 28th and 29th players called up for that series. I mean, it just seems to be uh, such an erratic process. Would you go along with that? Yeah, I I think it was pretty
2: erratic. Lord Ted Dexter was in charge of it all, and he he was obviously quite vague and a bit disorganised, I think. Uh, Bless him. And I think there was a fair amount of dysfunction with that sort of top team of Gower, Dexter and Mickey Stewart at the time, a mixture of various mixture of philosophies. I don't think they're aligned particularly well. Yeah, but, I, you know, i take it, whatever it was, 28th or 29th player, to get selected was a great honour.
0: Yeah, and just a word on Alan Eagleston. I mean, what, what are your memories of him? Obviously, tragically, he, he passed away. D- did you know him well and what was he like during that match?
2: Yeah, he was a uh, exact contemporary of mine, I think, and played a lot against him. And playing with him, we forged a friendship through playing that test match together, always kept in touch. It's very, very sad to see what happened to him. Tragic, absolutely tragic. Um, in fact, David Capel as well. I mean, he played in that test match and he recently, he died. But that, that's really tragic as well. So, yeah, very sad But Iggy was such a great bloke and, you know, proper human being.
0: What do you remember about turning up at the Oval for that sixth test and, you know, how warm was the welcome in terms of your teammates and, and others at the ground? And it's bizarre because in those days,
2: we had a two hour net on the Wednesday afternoon, and and that was it. And I remember waiting so long for this day to come, and then I couldn't find my way to the oval in my clapped out old banger. Got there late, which is a nightmare, and bumped into Ted Dexter. He didn't recognize me and sent me into the wrong dressing room because he thought I was a net bowler. So I had to introduce myself. It was strange. I mean, even though there's a lot of media there, and I saw some footage recently of us having a fielding practice the day before the game. Not much preparation, definitely not much of a team meeting because David Gard really didn't want to have a detailed team meeting the day before the game. Mickey Stewart did initiate something, but then David Gard cut it short and said, look, Mickey, we just need to get the top of off and back. Well, what else can we do? So it wasn't much of a much preparation.
0: The other extraordinary thing about that first morning was that you were all set to have a bat, weren't you? And uh, stride out to the middle. Yeah. The,
2: you know, that first morning, it was a beautiful day, uh, very hot, dry, pitch looked fantastic. And I was ready to bat. The, the announcer, the PA announcer, announced that England won the toss and elected to bat. So I got all my gear on. I was ready, ready to go. I got, got ready far too early. So it's about 20 to 11. But I thought I'd just get ready, sight myself up. And then once I was completely ready to go, another announcement came through the eye saying, sorry, it's been a mistake, Australia run toss and are batting. So I had to take all my gear off.
0: <laughs> so how does it <laughs> feel then going out to the middle? Knowing, I mean, Australia obviously were utterly dominant with a bat that year and they racked up another huge total. So yeah, what was it like fielding when they were doing so well?
2: I remember it was exhausting because I um, mean the, the the oval was massive in those days. The, the boundaries were huge. Australia was so dominant. And I remember this overwhelming feeling of fatigue. I never felt it before the evening of that first day. And I didn't bowl. Um, I was just fielding, running around like mad, a lot of pressure. You don't want to make a fool of yourself in front of the crowd and the cameras. And I think it, that's what it is that extra pressure of that scrutiny. It, it, it really got to me, actually.
0: But when you finally did have a bat, that was on the, the evening of the second day, wasn't it? In pretty poor batting conditions. But you managed to come through that mini-session, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It was dark. Alderman
2: and Lawson were bowling. Gucci got out, LBW. But I managed to survive and um, get through to the morning of day three.
0: So you go to bed that night, surely, dreaming of maybe something spectacular, maybe a 50, maybe even a 100 on day for England. Is, is that what you were thinking as your head hit the pillow? I try my best to think
2: positively, and you know, I didn't get much sleep. So I was just thinking about batting and... There'd been some overnight rain as to the outfield has slowed down. If you look back at the footage, as I walked out on that third morning with Michael Atherton, Richie Beno said, "This could be the future of England's batting." So, he got it half right anyway.
0: Yeah, a real sliding doors moment. And do you often think about that—the you know trajectory of Michael Atherton's career compared to yours?
2: I think about the sliding doors moments that take you to success and failure (laughs) michael atherton obviously a class act and and proved himself i i I, you know i i feel that i could have played more however it wasn't to be and michael atherton went on and played 100 tests so that's life but i I was actually really proud of the way i played that morning because there were wickets falling around me it looked like it's going to be a terrible england collapse again and I put on 50-odd with David Gower, I think, as well. And I felt really good. I, I thought, I'm in here. I've done all the hard work, batted for over two hours. That's the mindset that year, is that they'd have to bowl a really good ball to get me out. And that's how I felt that I was in that zone then. And I was really looking forward to the leg spinner coming on as well. Uh, I never got to that moment. But I felt really, I felt good out there. It was difficult to score quickly, just... Their bowling attack was, it was just so, didn't give you anything to hit. And Terry Alderman was just bowling beautifully. and uh, But I felt that I'd met that challenge quite well up until the, the moment I got out.
0: And you'd, you'd been hit previously by Merv Hughes, hadn't you? So did that kind of unsettle you a bit? Do you think that was the kind of real reason that Alderman got you out? Or was it a brilliant ball that got you out?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I think back at this a lot because Merv was... Merv and I were good mates you know we played a lot together he was having a go at me and in, in good you know in in a good way then he came round the wicket at me and decided to bowl a few bounces I thought bring it on Merv that's fine but this one leapt off a length really caught me by surprise and hit me on the back of my right wrist bizarre place to get hit yeah really I mean this big purple dome just appeared on my wrist and the physio came on it must have been 10 minutes before lunch Bernie Thomas, he said, You got to come off, you know, just come and get it, get it sorted out. You can't bat with that. And I, I said, Oh, no, I can just make it through to lunch. I think I can hold my bat. It's fine. I wanted to be a hero, idiot. And then the next ball, I managed to get off strike. He bowled me one on my hips and I just glided it down to long leg. I thought, Okay, this is fine. Uh, because there's only, I think there's only one over left before lunch because of the, the, the delay in play while he looked at my wrist. And then I thought, oh, God, that's it. This should be lunch now. And then Terry Alderman had been off the pitch because he had suffered a some sort of respiratory problem. Anyway, he ran back onto the pitch for that last over. And Dickie Bird said, "Okay, let's have one more one more over before lunch." And I was down Terry Alderman's end to face him. I thought, okay, this is okay. I'll get through this. And and they brought in Steve Waugh. Slip. He, he wasn't there before that ball. They brought him in, and this ball's just. No, I can't I can't explain it. I thought it was coming in at me and I thought I've just got to just play it at the back foot and I parried at it and I edged it straight to Steve Wall. Don't know why I did it. It might have been something to do with my wrist. I was kicking myself because I could have easily come off a retired hurt in that moment before. But I was I, I wasn't that sort of person. I wasn't that sort of player. I was quite renowned for taking blows and continuing. And just battling it out. And that's just my mentality. But the rest is history, really,
0: as they say. The next tour was the one to the West Indies, wasn't it, in the winter, which you didn't get selected for. So that begs the question, what would you have had to have done in that match to get selected? I wonder if you got 50, they would have selected you or would it have had to be in 100? These are the sorts of things I guess we'll, we'll never know. But you went on the A tour, didn't you, to Zimbabwe. So... Did that at least make you think? Well, I'm still in the reckoning here. I might not be on the West Indies main tour, but at least I'm part of the setup, as it were.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I I still felt that I had a chance. There was an obsession in those days about players who could play the short pitch ball because of the fast bowling, we we were getting annihilated by the West Indies in those days. And I think there's that picture of me parrying Merv Hughes when he hit me on the wrist. You know, both feet off the ground, and, and I think that might have caused a perception that maybe had a weakness against short-pitch bowling, which is ludicrous because that was one of my strengths, you know? But that, that was the national obsession in those days. And they were always looking for players who could play fast, short-pitch bowling.
0: Was it then bizarre the following summer, 1990, when England were racking up the runs against India to see Gooch and Atherton both, well, particularly Gooch, but both of them making hundreds in that year? Was that, was that quite strange? particularly since you were batting well as well.
2: Yeah, I was. You know, we were all scoring runs in 1990, but it would have been obviously an opportunity to score runs. I mean, in 1990, I, I captained England A against India, Edgbaston, got 140-odd not out. I think I was quite close. But I think also being, because Gucci was captain of England, I was batting with him a lot. Sometimes you do suffer from being a little bit close to someone who select, you know, could influence selection.
0: Really, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think maybe, but you know Gucci I think he rated me, don't get me wrong, but sometimes you also see someone's weaknesses if you you spend a lot of time with them. But uh that Gucci and I had some amazing partnerships in 1990. But you, you know, there never seemed to be another opportunity. I don't know why other people got established it just didn't transpire, but I don't have any regrets about that.
0: Yeah, well, what would be really good to understand is the other two near misses you had in terms of playing for England, particularly the one against Australia. I don't know if you can just recount that story to us when England were touring Australia and you got a call up to the side. What happened there?
2: I was working in a bottle shop on the Gold Coast, one of those drive-through bottle shops. So I was playing for the Gold Coast Dolphins in the Brisbane Grade competition, doing doing quite well, and Mickey Stewart somehow managed to contact me on one of my shifts. He said, you've got to get up to Brisbane Grammar. We've got a couple of injuries, Alex Stewart and Alan Lammer injured. Get in your car, come and join the, the practice at Brisbane Grammar, because you're probably going to play tomorrow in the test match. <laughs> oh my. So I got, I got straight up there, joined the practice, joined the squad. There was no room in the hotel, so I had to sleep in the manager's uh, sort of team room. And then the next morning, I'll never forget going to the ground. I, I was convinced I was going to play because there was such an injury cloud over two batsmen. And on the way to the ground, I do remember it's because Tuffers and I were having a bit of a chat in the minivan. And that's where I got a, got the real the clarity about David Gower, who every, everyone thinks is quite casual. But I remember him telling us to shut up when you see, I'm you know, trying to focus on the cricket. I thought, oh, oh Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. That's not like the oval, yeah. No, I know. But that morning, I was going through the normal rituals one does when you're getting ready to play a test match. Uh, but there was there was a lot of uncertainty. So I, I was kind of trying to get myself ready, but also help the team get ready with slip catching and hitting catches and because I was really uncertain as to what was happening. And it, they didn't make a decision until 20 minutes before the game. So I was thinking, oh, am I playing, am I playing, am I playing? And then eventually I was sort of tapped on the shoulder and said that Alec and Lammy think they're fit, so you're going to be 12th man. So that was quite a moment, actually. Do you think they were fit? I think they were. I think Lammy, I, actually, I remember Lammy getting caught cutting the spinner, Matthew, Greg Matthews, because Gucci was injured, wasn't he?
0: Gucci was injured, yeah, yeah. He got that cut, didn't he? He became infected, I think. Yeah, he was injured. So that's why they called me up
2: as well. So, And then I hung around the squad for a while after that before Hugh Morris came out. Because there was a lot of discussion about whether they were going to keep me or bring Hugh Morris out. And then they decided to bring Hugh Morris out. And bizarrely, I replaced him as captain of the England A-team to Pakistan, having not been selected. So I got ready to go to Pakistan from Australia and then they decided at the last moment that actually Hugh Morris was going to go, so they sent him back because Gucci had recovered. So it's all, there are all sorts of shenanigans going on
0: there. <laughs> I mean, what are your thoughts then? Because, you know, you're being treated pretty badly here, aren't you? Are you starting to lose your rag a little bit with the selectors at this point?
2: Well, one thing, you're feeling good because you are involved, you know, you're thought about and then to be I was flummoxed why I wasn't selected for that A towards Pakistan first place but then suddenly to replace Hugh Morris as captain it seemed illogical but I thought this is great it's another opportunity I'll do whatever I'm told but I did lose my rag a little bit because I got all the inoculations vaccines got myself ready and Aussie Wheatley said just be ready it was New Year's Eve be ready to go get all your bags packed And then we're going to ring you when we make a decision about Hugh Morris. So I was all ready to go. And then I got the phone call saying, sorry, we've now decided Hugh Morris is going to leave the Australian touring party and he's going to go to Pakistan. So we don't need you anymore. And that's that's when I thought, "Mm, "Okay, that's probably a little bit too much.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Because. OK, they may have rung you and said, OK, you're not going to be captain, but can you please join us as one of the batsmen? Because surely if you're good enough to be captain, you're good enough to have uh, place in the side. Yeah, it's really ridiculous, actually, now you've
2: said that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you carried on playing for... As I said you were out in Australia then, but when you came back to the UK, you carried on playing for Essex, carried on scoring runs, and that continued to be a very successful time for Essex, didn't it?
2: Yes, it did. Yeah, those years from nineteen ninety to ninety-two you know we were we were a really good team winning championships if not winning coming second.
0: Why were you such a good side? Was it just because of the caliber of players or was there something else?
2: Essex have managed it really well. They, they managed to bring, as I say, the young players and recruit good overseas players into successful teams and there was a good transition and handover from the former legends to the new the new crop. And then there people like Pringle and Foster who straddled both eras and obviously Fletch and Gucci were always around to mentor and guide Essex through everything and we just knew how to win matches. We had a formula of winning festival weeks, you know, we'd get a couple of victories at Ilford, Southend, Colchester gave us momentum. Uh, we just found a way of winning, but we found a way of scoring runs, enough runs in a match to win matches.
0: And then back to England, the other near miss was we get up to 1994 now and there was The potential for you to play against New Zealand?
2: Yeah so what happened was in 94 I was bowling a lot by this stage a lot more than I had been and there was this whole thing about heading me (laughs) getting right bowlers for heading me they didn't really have an all-rounder I'd been bowling well getting wickets as well as scoring a few runs and and then Craig White started appearing on the scene as well Totally different cricketer to me I mean he was a fast bowler who batted down the order a medium-paced bowler who got wickets in certain conditions but batted up the order so yeah so what I didn't know is that they, that first test against New Zealand but heading me they would selected me but then they hadn't told me but then I'd broken my thumb L- literally maybe the day they'd done it they'd selected the team I broke my thumb in the nets Michael Kasparovich hit me on the thumb I, I couldn't play so they never told me this but I later on that year. I went to South Africa. What was the year after, actually? And Fred Tipmus was at a party in Constantia, and he told me he was on that selection panel, and that I'd been picked. So that's the first I've heard of it. <laughs> no one ever told me that. And I know Railingworth was a great fan of mine for some reason. Don't ask me why. And he wanted me picked, when he was involved at that stage. So, yeah, that was interesting. That,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, more so than any. Almost any of the other people I've spoken to this podcast, there do seem to be a series of cruel jokes being played on you, you know, if you didn't know any better. I don't know. How did you feel that the luck just wasn't with you at certain points when you needed it?
2: Yeah, I, I'm not a great believer in that. But I suppose when I reflect on it, you know, we had a few unfortunate bits of luck. But I think at the end of the day, Graham, if you, if you get enough, you play a lot of chess matches for England. I think... If I'd been given more of a chance, I, I could have given it a really good go. And it's all about being managed well as well, isn't it? And that being given the confidence to, to do well and get given a run in the team, which I, I never had. But again, you know, maybe I wasn't I didn't quite do well enough at the right times. There was a moment in ninety-two when I was doing really well where I thought I should have been picked. Uh, Mark War said, I remember Mark War saying to me, because I'd had a miraculous game at Taunton, and he said Jeez, they've got to pick him now. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> you know, I remember him saying that. That was quite funny. So there are moments like that that I remember.
0: And then I guess the next question is, since you retired from cricket then you worked for the MCC for a long time, now you're CEO of Essex Cricket, did those experiences at the hands of selectors, did they feed into your kind of mentality for your administration and coaching roles?
2: Definitely, because anything in life you learn from experience and i'm particularly sensitive to all, all those areas about making sure players are well are well looked after uh, communication is clear and there's training and development and good, good pastoral care for players and staff actually not just players i'm passionate about that training and development especially so all those things that were lacking on a formal basis when i was playing i'm very keen on now in my era the development and training and nurturing was really your players and your, your colleagues learning on the field and being reliant on your teammates. Now, you, you know, obviously got a close relationship with your teammates. It's really important that that culture is good. But, you know, you're, you're heavily reliant on your, your coach, your mentors, your sports psychologist, you know, your, your support staff. At Essex, we've got fantastic support staff. At MCC, we, we did as well through our MCC Young cricketer Scheme, which I really was passionate about. And the MCC University Scheme as well that was up and running in those days. So anything that helps player development, I'm passionate about.
0: Yeah. And what would you say was more challenging? Obviously, now you're CEO Essex. Is it more challenging in that kind of role or when you were back playing? The current role is challenging in, in, in many respects, but it's
2: moved on as a club so much, I think, it's got so much potential. We've got good people there. We've got a fantastic squad with players that have committed for, you know, long-term contracts. So I'm really happy about that. Though so Essex is a, a club that's definitely moved on, and we've got good systems in place to ensure long-term success. I think, as well as running the business and everything around that, having a little bit of input into the cricket as well has been well. It's been great. Really enjoyed it.
0: And we've thoroughly enjoyed having John on the show. A one, Ashes test wonders have frequently been at the mercy of the whims and fancies of the selectors. Fred Rumsey and Pat Pocock immediately spring to mind, and John Stevenson can certainly be added to that list. Time for close of play. Thanks to John, and thanks again to Kevin. A reminder that you can find out more about Iggy's fund at alanigleston.com. 1993, Ashes is next. We heard from Kevin that it was only an injury sustained in an indoor football match, that stopped Alan from playing in the series. But Steve Watkin of Glamorgan was injury-free and did play, and play very successfully in the sixth test of the series at the Oval. His story is coming very soon. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes.